with reading the story that I read on most retreats at Guy House, if not all the retreats. My favorite story of frog and toad and the garden. <laughs> I think it's one of those stories that um, people never tire of hearing. <clears throat> Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog. It is very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, asked Toad. Quite soon, said Frog. Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, Now seeds, start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Now seeds, start growing. (laughs) Frog came running up the path. What is all this noise, he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You're shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. (laughs) My seeds are afraid to grow, asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night... Toad looked out of his window. Drat, said Toad. (laughs) My seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. (laughs) Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. (laughs) Then they will not be afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. All the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad played music for his seeds. Toad looked at the ground. The seeds still did not start to grow. Oh, what shall I do, cried Toad. These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. (laughs) Then Toad felt very tired, and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden, too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you were right, Frog. It was very hard work. Very hard work, isn't it? (laughs) We can all relate to how hard the work is, I think. (laughs) But really the question is, does it need to be so hard? Does it need to be as hard as we make it? We really seem to be unable to flow with the changes with the changing nature in our life and really let life take its course. And we really can see this in the meditation 
you know, in a very simple way, just with staying with the breath and when the thought comes, you know, if there's that subtle judgment and that not liking and what's wrong and taking it personally and why is my mind thinking so much and uh, what does it mean about me? I'm never going to be able to meditate and I'm never going to stay with my breath and on and on and on and on, you know. And all that really happened was that a thought arose. (laughs) And, you know, maybe for a moment or some moments we were lost in it and then we came back. No. But there's some habit of mind that we we build such a large structure and complex of ideas on top of these seemingly small events that happen in our life if we really look closely at them. We have our ideas of what we want. This ego takes control. This I, what I want, what I think, what I believe. And we hold on and we cling to our ideas and our views, trying to get events of life to match our preferences. We try to get things to match the way that we want things to be. And as my co-teacher, Christopher Titmus said, when what we want and what happens actually comes together, it's a miracle. You know, and we don't see that it's a miracle. <laughs> that what we wanted and what actually happened matches. <laughs> no, but is it really in our control? Did that happen because we made it happen? Or was it just a congruent event at that moment? Here in the West, we really have this illusion of control in our lives. Because everything works rather efficiently. And all you need to do is go to a country like India, and you can see that it is really just an illusion of sorts. It's just um, because man has asserted its its preferences and uh, likes to make a system work in a particular way. But you go to India, I mean, the example that I like to use is trying to get money out of a bank in India. And what actually takes place compared to if you want to get money in a place like England or America, which is actually just going to a hole in, in, in the West, you just go to a hole in the wall put in a card, push a couple buttons, and you got money. Very instantly, lots of control, lots of power there, you know, just push a couple buttons and instant money. That's if you have money in your bank account. (laughs) That's the catch. (laughs) But in, in India, first the bank has to be open which is a big first, because if if it's not kind of some kind of state or national holiday, and if the uh, worker decided to come in that day, and then if the bank is open, then you have to be sure that um, they know the exchange rate. Um, One place we went, they had to actually, the bank manager had to call another bank to find out what the exchange rate was, and the phone didn't work. So he couldn't tra- uh, exchange our traveler's checks that day because he couldn't get through on the phone to another uh, bank. And then you have to go through a number of different procedures. It takes about three, uh, two to three hours to get any kind of money, just even traveler's checks exchanged. So this illusion of control that we have here, 
you know, that we, because things seem to flow pretty much like we like them to. That is, the systematic kinds of things, the technological kinds of things. But then even so, life impinges. Life impinges. And we're surprised. It's like, why is it happening like this? You know, it's like something's wrong. We don't understand. Why isn't it going the way it's supposed to go? Why isn't it going the way we like it to go? You know, and there's this continual frustration that is not just going according to our preferences. We lose things that we love. We don't get what we want. We feel grief and sadness, anger, despair. Life doesn't go the way we want. But we take it personally. You know, it's a very odd thing. <laughs> very odd thing that the mind does, is taking all this so personally. We think we're doing something wrong and we wonder, why me? How can I do it differently? So the question could be, is this all there is? Is our life about wishing, hoping things are going to get better? We drag ourselves along, coping with the seemingly inner and outer chaos, trying to make order, trying to gain more control, hoping that things are going to get better. But somehow, I don't think that this is the only way. I think the spiritual teachings point to something quite differently. One area that we explore through the meditation, through the teachings of the Buddha Dhamma, are called the three characteristics of existence. And we look deeply and gain some insight into these three characteristics. The first characteristic of all phenomenon is that it's changing. This is called anicca. In Pali, it's called anicca. Everything changes. Everything that's born dies. That everything has an impermanent existence. The second characteristic of existence is called dukkha, which means unsatisfactoriness, that everything in existence is unsatisfactory. It's inherently unsatisfactory because we can't hold on. As soon as we try to hold on, it changes. So how can we get any satisfaction from anything because it's always changing, it's unreliable? So we call it dukkha. It's unsatisfactory. And yet we continually try to gain satisfaction from things and people and situations and events without looking deeply into this truth of anicca and dukkha. And the third characteristic is called anatta in Pali, anatta. And this means that since everything is changing, there's nothing that's solid. Nothing has any solid substantial reality, including ourselves, 
This is what's sometimes called the no-self principle, because we even take this body and this mind to be solid, to be substantial. But if we look closely, we see that this too is always changing. If we put our um, a bone, some bone uh, underneath a microscope, we would see that it's a, a, a mass of molecules and atoms in flux moving, changing, shifting. There's nothing solid about it. But yet it gives the appearance of solidity. If you put anything on a microscope, it will have the same, the same uh, quality to it, in flux, changing, shifting, space, movement. And in that, everything is dependent on everything else for its existence. What we have is just a play of interactive formations. Everything playing with everything else. Nothing solid, nothing substantial, always changing. Everything unreliable, no stability. The forms are ever-changing. Conditions come together and then they dissolve. Conditions come together and then they dissolve. And a new set of conditions arise coming and going, coming and going, like the waves on an ocean, coming in and going out, always changing, always in flux. All you have to do is look at your mind today. How many different mind states have you been in just today? Just this day, not even adding yesterday or the day before. No. How many times your mind has changed? Sometimes dull and sleepy. Sometimes clarity, openness. Sometimes agitated and full of thought. Mm -hmm. But changing, changing, not stable in any way through the day. And yet we may want the mind to be a certain way. We want it to stay. We want it to stay. Stay. <laughs> Stay quiet. <laughs> Don't give me so much trouble. <laughs> but it doesn't stay. It changes. It moves. How many times has this body changed today? The sensations in the body, sometimes feeling heavy and tired, sometimes light and full of energy sometimes full of excitement, sometimes feeling sick, you know, ill, or cold, hot. You're always changing. Nothing static in the body or the mind. That's because this is nature. This is nature just as all of that is nature. We're no different. There's nothing different here than over there. We're made of the same elements, the same vibratory elements. There's day and night, the changing of the sun and the moon and the stars. Sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's hot. Sometimes it's wet, sometimes it's not. Always changing. And this is life. This is our life, changing conditions. Something new is born, 
something old dies. All things pass away. Sometimes things pass away gradually, like a person's life. Sometimes it's a long time, you know, maybe a hundred years, a hundred and ten years, or maybe a career. You know, some people may be involved in one job for a very long time, you know, maybe twenty years or forty years, and but then it comes to an end. Sometimes a piece of clothing could take a long time before all of a sudden you just see some thread starting to show and little holes starting to poke through in the shoulder and it's like, oh, there it goes. <laughs> My favorite t-shirt. <laughs> and sometimes things pass quickly, you know, just like that, like a thought, a thought. Now it passes so quickly we can't even see it sometimes. It's there and it's gone in a flash. Or a raindrop. A raindrop on the, the pond in the back. It hits, sends out ripples and it's gone. Or a bird song. It's so lovely to sit here and listen to the bird songs. They come, they just they're born. The song is born. It makes its presence and its display and then it disappears, finished, dies away very quickly. Or the sound of a bell. Comes into existence, passes away as all things. A short poem about this. The moon waxes merely to wane. An overripe peach begins to rot. A wave crests, then ebbs. In all things, when there is no longer room for advance, decay sets in. When there is no longer room for advance, then decay sets in. Moment to moment, this arising and passing away of conditions, thoughts, feelings, sensations, images, situations, <coughs> people, the sun, the moon, the rain. We may say, you know, well, yes, this is obvious. You know, change is obvious to us. If you ask anybody on the street, is there change in life? They say, of course there's change in life. You know, things are changing all the time. But the question is, do we really live deeply with this wisdom? Do we live with this wisdom? Because if we were living with this wisdom, with this truth, it may be that we could stay balanced with the changes as they happen we may be able to experience some fluidity and some equanimity in ourselves with the changes in life. It's a very important reflection, this reflection on impermanence, because if we can deeply understand this truth of existence, we can experience amazing freedom in our lives freedom from holding, 
freedom from attachment, freedom from clinging and possessing, and freedom from all the fear that arises around that. This reflection on impermanence motivated the Buddha to be, to seek enlightenment. When he was still a prince in the palace, he asked, Why should I, who am subject to old age, disease, and death, seek that which is also subject to old age, disease, and death? He really saw that everything that he was seeking was going to pass away was going to die, and it wasn't going to give him any lasting fulfillment. And when he deeply saw this, that nothing was going to bring the happiness that he was seeking, he left the palace. He left the palace to discover the true happiness that is not dependent on any condition or anything in this world. He was simply not satisfied until he found out the truth. There's a lovely story from the time of the Buddha about a woman named Kema in India. And Kema was one of the two women responsible for running the first community of nuns at the time of the Buddha. And in the text, she was considered to possess some of the greatest insight, some of the deepest insight of any of his disciples. She came from a ruling family and was very, very beautiful. It is said that her skin was, her skin was the color of pure gold. And because she was so beautiful, she became the chief consort of King Bimbisara, and became his favorite lover among many wives, other lovers, female servants, and all of his slaves. Because of her high status as the king's chief consort, and especially on account of her beauty, she was very, very conceited. When the Buddha would visit the royal court, he would speak ill of beauty and pleasure, and Kama decided she had no interest in hearing him preach. But when the court poets composed songs on the loveliness of the hermitage where the Buddha was staying, she was curious to see it and arranged a visit. Indeed, the woods and gardens were exquisite, but when she was led before the Buddha, he made an image appear before her of a goddess far more beautiful than she and showed that woman passing from youth to middle age and finally to old age with broken teeth, gray hair, and wrinkled skin. Will it not be the same for me, thought Kama? The vision deeply impressed on her the truth of impermanence. Then the Buddha, who knew her thoughts, said that people devoted to physical beauty were found were bound to the world, while those who saw through this attachment were free. And when he had finished speaking, Kama was enlightened, as, <laughs> as most everyone was who heard the Buddha speak during that time. 
<laughs> Too bad we didn't live during the time of the Buddha. <laughs> it all might have been much easier. <laughs> so she immediately left King Bimbisara and became a nun. And then she went on to form the first community of nuns during that time. In seeing this great and obvious truth of impermanence, we have to ask if all things are subject to old age, disease, and death, then truly what is of value in our lives? What is worth cultivating in our lives? I think it's really an important question for us to reflect on. Because generally what happens is that we think we need to seek out more experiences, something that's better, something that's greater than what we're experiencing right now. That the experience we're having now isn't good enough, isn't acceptable. And we don't see deeply that this experience too is going to change. So rather than knowing that this experience is going to change and there's nothing we really have to do, we immediately attempt to create some better experience. The mind starts seeking, the mind starts moving. What can I do here? What can I do there? What if this happened? What if that happened? How can I set this up? What if I create this? You know, the mind starts to fantasize, starts to move. But where have all our experiences gone, really? Is it worth spending our lives chasing after more experiences? What happened to the lunch that we had today? (laughs) That wonderful lunch. with all those dishes and the gravies and the sauces and dressings. and (laughs) Where is that argument that we had last week that wants to keep coming up and the mind wants to go over it again and again and again? It's gone. It's finished. We say, it's back there with Alexander the Great. No, it's gone. It's history. (laughs) There's no relevance now, no relevance to this moment. Everything's going to change. Whatever is born will die. But we forget that this body and mind is subject to the same law. What is our relationship to this unreliable changing mind? What is our relationship to that? What is our relationship to the changing condition of this body? To the fact that it's going to decay? We feel ill health at times in this decaying process. To age, body aging, dying, and to death. To death itself. We forget about the inevitability of death. It's something that doesn't stay very much in our consciousness. And that's partly due to our culture, 
hiding it all away as much as possible. It isn't part of our life. It isn't, it isn't something in our life that we see very much. So we're not reminded. The reminders of that aspect of impermanence is, is hidden away. It's pushed away. So we don't have to think about it. We don't have to see it. And we forget that the time of death is uncertain. You know, we imagine that it's in the future. You know, we have 80 years to live or 90 years to live. We forget. The time of death is uncertain. And we forget that at the time of death, nothing has any value except our spiritual understanding. But it's the only thing that can give us some solace, that can give us some peace, that can give us some rest at those difficult times. And these are actually three worthwhile contemplations that, the, that death is inevitable, that the time of death is uncertain, and that nothing really has any value except our wisdom. Very useful to elect, reflect on these things, to help us wake up, to help us feel more connected to the truth of change and impermanence and helps us, it can help us to let go, not be so attached to the incidental things of life, to the trivial things of life, and perhaps to help us live our lives in a more conscious and full way. These teachings and the meditation help us to be more fluid with the changes that occur. The meditation doesn't teach us how to make things more static, you know, how to make things more permanent and more fixed, which is kind of what the mind would like, (laughs) to be able to control things and get things kind of in the order that we'd like. But the meditation doesn't help us do that. We think we want things to stay the same. Things that we love, like our home, or our car, or this body, or youth, or whatever it is. Sometimes we think we'd like time to stand still when, when things are good, when we're having pleasant experiences, or, or emotional states that we like, like happiness, or love, or excitement. Then we want everything to stand still. We don't want anything to change. When we like what's happening, when it's good, we want it to be forever. But when it's bad, when we don't like it, then we want it to change. We want it to go away. We want it to not be around. Now, that controlling the mind, you know, I want this to stay, I don't want this to stay. I like this, I don't like that. No. Rather than just seeing that it changes on its own. It all changes on its own. There's a story that may fit here. There's a story of a farmer who had a son and a horse, his prized possession. 
And he lived in a town where the village people got quite involved in all the activities of all the different families. And one day his horse ran away. And so the friends got together and talking, oh, isn't it terrible? You know, you lost one of your most prized possessions and isn't it awful and what are you going to do? And the farmer said, maybe. And the next day, the horse came back with another horse, two horses. So now the farmer had two horses. So the friends in the village got together. Oh, isn't it wonderful? How fantastic. Now you have two horses. Isn't it terrific? And the farmer said, maybe. (laughs) And then the horse that the other horse brought back was a bit wild. And his son got on the horse to try to tame it, and he fell off and broke his leg. Well, this was really unfortunate because the, fu- the son was quite invaluable in helping with the chores around the farm. So the friends got together and talked with the farmer and said, Isn't it terrible? What are you going to do now that your son fell off the horse and broke his leg and, his leg and can't help around anymore? And the farmer said, Maybe. <laughs> a week later, a war broke out nearby and the cavalry came by and was recruiting all the healthy young men who could go to the army. But the son couldn't go because he broke his leg. There's a... (laughs) You know, how easily the mind wants to determine whether something is good or something is not good. Immediately, oh, this is wonderful, oh, this is terrible. No. The mind, thinking that it knows, thinking that it has a handle on the situation. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe. Maybe it's for the better. Maybe it's not. Meditation teaches us how to be more tolerant with these changes. It doesn't teach us how to make things more static, more fixed how to control our lives and get things into order. Life is in chaos. Life is in, <laughs> life is in disorder all the time. And meditation teaches us how to be more tolerant with the change, with the flow of things, so that we're not so reactive, we're not so attached, we don't get so involved in it all. But we have more possibility to settle back and to feel some balance of mind, some equanimity of mind in the face of all of this chaos and disorder. There's another story of the old monk on the hill. In the village below where he lived, there was a young girl who got pregnant by one of the local boys. And, his, and her father couldn't live with the outrage around this girl having this baby. So after the baby was born, he took the baby up to the monk on the hill and decided that he was going to accuse this monk of being the father of this baby, and that way he could get rid of it, and nobody would really have to know about it. So he went up to the monastery, knocked on the door with the baby, and the monk came to the door, 
and he said, you know, look what you did, and you, you got my daughter pregnant, and this is your son, and you take it, and it's all your responsibility. And the monk looked at him and put his hands together and said, ah, so. Took the baby in. Well, about a few, few months later, the father couldn't live with his lie. So he decided he had to go back and face the truth. So he went back up and knocked on the door. The monk came to the door and he said, you know, I'm sorry, I lied, this isn't your child, I need to take the child back. And the monk looked at him, put his hands together and said, ah, so, gave the child back. Being fluid with the changes of life, not being in struggle, not being in conflict, is this a possibility for us? Is this something that may be able to come about for us? There's a main meditation instruction of one great woman yogi master. Her main meditation instruction was, ah, this too, ah, this too, ah, this too. Each time something arose, some new condition, new experience, new feeling, new thought, whether we liked it or we didn't like it. Ah, this too. Just that. Working with this ability to be so balanced and so equanimous with the changes. Of course, we don't want to set this up as a standard because immediately it could become another ideal another way that we think we have to be, and then, of course, we're in conflict again. We're not really allowing this experience to have its life. So rather than to set it up as a standard and then to club ourselves with, it's rather to let be with what we see in ourselves. To really let be, including all the aspects, the difficult aspects, as well as the aspects that we like in ourselves. The anger, the hatred, the confusion, the grief, the sadness. Can we just say, yeah, this too, this too, this too. Make space for all of it. Open up the space so big that we can embrace all of it, we can hold all of it. And letting be is not a passive letting be. It doesn't mean an inactive letting be, that we don't do anything. Because when we're just entangled in all these habits, there's no freedom in that. So this kind of letting be is an active letting be. It means we need to be attentive. We need to be attentive to what's happening. Because without awareness, without conscious attention, there's no transformation possible. We're just entangled in these habitual tendencies. So we need to be attentive, and we need to acknowledge what's happening. We need to know what's happening and feel it and embrace it, actively participate in the experience that is happening. And we need to allow it, not to struggle with it, not to be in conflict with it, We call the kind of awareness that we're practicing here a non-interfering awareness. Non-interfering awareness. 
So when you notice that there is interference, is interference, that's something else besides the awareness. That's where the I comes in. That's where the me comes in. And then that's where the struggle comes in. But the awareness itself is pure. The awareness itself embraces, is spacious, is radiant, is loving. The awareness contains the metta, the openness of heart that we can bring to our experiences, the love with understanding that we can bring to what we see in ourselves. The change happens on its own. It's only the mind that gets stuck. Change is always happening, but the mind doesn't really want to accept that. So, so the more we can turn in and look at the mind, look at, even look at this mind that we take to be so substantial and so real and we so identify with as me, we can even see that that's just always changing. We even change our minds. <laughs> you know, sometimes we like something and then the next minute we don't like it. You know, nothing reliable. So the letting be means we stop struggling with life. Even if it's momentarily, just for a moment, the heart awakens. Just in that moment when we let go, we let be, stop struggling, the heart awakens. We're there. We're present in love and understanding. And in that moment, there's a profound trust in the unfolding of things. In that letting be, what arises in that is a profound trust in the natural, innate intelligence of the process that's happening, of something else that's holding us, something else that's embracing us. A haiku, a poem, a three-line poem. Simply trust Don't the leaves flutter down just like that? Simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that? We trust in something much greater than this small mind. What I want, what I think is best. And see if we can feel into something other some other reality, some other power, some other force behind this changing appearance. I'll end with a poem, well not a poem, but a a reading from a Tibetan master, a Dzogchen master, Lama Gudjin Rinpoche, <coughs> called Doha. <laughs> Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already there in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. Whatever arises in the mind has no importance at all because it has no reality whatsoever. Don't become attached to it. Don't pass judgment. Let the game happen on its own. 
springing up and falling back without changing anything, and all will vanish and reappear without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It is like a rainbow which you run after without ever catching it. Although it does not exist, it has always been there and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like rainbows. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. So make use of it. All is yours already. Don't search any further. Don't go into the inextricable jungle looking for the elephant who is already quietly at home. Nothing to do, nothing to force, nothing to want, and everything happens by itself. So we sit quietly for a few minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.